Father, we know that you talk to us through your word. You convict us and you, you guide us because if we didn't have this, Father, we'd just be left to our own, our own thoughts, our own desires, and we all know so well where that would lead us. And so we understand it's a proof of your love for us that you write down your knowledge, your wisdom, hand it to us in this book and ask us to consider it. And, uh, Father, what, uh, what a show of your mercy and grace it is that you would condescend to reveal yourself to us. And so, Father, I am thankful, though the conviction is, is real, Father. Nonetheless, we are thankful. For, Father, it is a spiritually mature man or woman who can understand that you save us as we are, but you love us so much you won't leave us there. And so we do know, Father, that change is inevitable. Conviction and confession are a means to something better. So let, let, let us see that truth here again today as we study. Let us understand where we are relative to where you are. And knowing how far we have to go, Father, let us embark on a walk to reach you. As far as we can go in this life, as far as you will let us go. And in, in making that journey, Father, I pray we please you and that it would glorify you. We know this is training. We need it, Father. We ask you would uh, do that work, teaching each of us in our own way, using the weakness of the preacher, Father, to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 5. Back in chapter 5 of Ephesians, we pick up again in Paul's discussion of what it means to walk in love as Christ did and what kinds of things in our life can stand in the way of that walk. Last time we met, Paul got into this list of personal vices that he said would stand in the way of that walk. And more specifically, they stand in the way of our mission. And that's really the topic of conversation in chapter 5 and into chapter 6. Think of it not so much as a chapter about do's and don'ts, how to be a better Christian. Certainly it has that quality to it, and there is a certain truth to that. But that's just the surface. The real depth of the teaching that Paul's engaged in here is how to adopt a missional mindset. It's the mark of spiritual maturity that you think about your life as a mission in serving Christ for the sake of the gospel, and like any other mission, you have to organize yourself around the goal of the mission or you can't accomplish it. And for us, that begins with living our life in a certain way. Taking our old nature and the way it drives our thinking and behavior and putting it aside and in its place, putting on a new nature that God gives us in His Spirit so that instead of loving ourselves, which we all do instinctively, we love the world, we love others sacrificially, and as we do that, we are serving out a mission God has given us. Or at least we're prepared for that. But if our life is not organized in that way, if we let the worst of our nature own us, then literally you're setting aside the mission. You're taking what God gave you to do and you're saying, I don't want to do it. You're putting it aside. You're taking a vacation from your service to Christ, from your witness to the world. And Paul is telling us now in chapter 5, we ought not do that. And as I mentioned at the outset of this chapter, he embarked on what will be ultimately a laundry list of personal issues, beginning with the person himself or herself, moving to families and talking about communities of people in different contexts. And in all cases, he's going to talk about how our behavior in these situations can interfere with walking in love, with our mission. You remember last week, I'm sure, we began with the big ones, things like immorality and impurity and vulgarity. These categories convicted pretty much everyone in the room. Like I said, I'm taking for granted that I wasn't the only one because, again, I'd feel really terrible if I was. But let's also agree that knowing what we should do is one thing, but actually finding reason to do it 
That's a whole other thing. That's the difficulty of walking in the Spirit. And at this point in chapter 5, it becomes apparent that Paul knows he's asking a lot and that we may not be prepared to take the journey. And so he interrupts his list of vices today. Today we're not going to talk about any more new vices, thankfully. Instead, we get an exhortation from Paul beginning in verse 5 for why it is we should obey these commands. In other words, he's working now on our heart, on our motivation to actually live out the things that he's saying have to be a part of a Christian life. This runs from verse 5 to verse 17. That's what we're covering today. And it is a section on, of exhortation on how to do the things he's asking us to do. Let's begin and see where he goes. Verse 5. Paul says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul begins in verse 5 talking about a group of people who do the very things that he just counseled the church against doing back in the earlier verses. Now, because we covered these things, immorality, impurity, greediness, and all the rest, because we already covered all those things, I'm not going to go through them again here today. We're not interested in the sins so much now as we are in what it says about the individual. And in verse 5, Paul says, The people who do the very things I told you not to do, they will not see an inheritance in the kingdom. Now, in Greek, there's no article before the word inheritance, though there probably is in your English version. So a better translation, a more accurate translation would be, none of these people has inheritance in the kingdom. And the lack of an article before the word inheritance would suggest to us that Paul is speaking about unbelievers. That is, those who have no part in the kingdom whatsoever. And you'll see furthermore that from there Paul goes on to contrast believers with unbelievers, light and dark and so on in the rest of this passage. So his point is, you can't let the world's behaviors become our testimony since we have a mission of standing apart from that world. If you adopt the same pattern of behavior that marks the life of unbelievers, he says, if we become partakers with them, in other words, well, then you have no hope to influence the world for Christ, right? They don't know the difference between us and them. But then notice how Paul develops his argument. Look at how he argues for that outcome. First, he tells the church, don't be deceived by empty words. And I think what he's saying is that there must have been false teachers in Ephesus apparently teaching that a Christian's behavior after having been saved by faith doesn't matter. It's not important to God. Once you come to faith, you're saved, you have your fire insurance, doesn't really matter how you behave at that point, you can't lose your salvation, and therefore, eh, let's not concern ourselves with being holy or pursuing sanctification. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Paul disputes this, and he uses three arguments against that thinking. First, he says... These behaviors, the ones that mark the unbeliever, they're going to eventually bring about God's wrath against those individuals. For believers, that wrath was already poured out on Christ, so we don't have to worry about the wrath of God for these things. But unbelievers are going to receive God's wrath for these sins. His point is, God detests these behaviors. And knowing that these things will lead God to pour his wrath out against them, how can you and I sit around and do the very same things and think that somehow God is approving of it or allowing for it? 
Do you suppose God doesn't mind when we do the very same things that he's prepared to pour wrath out on someone else? Do you expect him to turn a blind eye to that? You may not receive his wrath because, as we said, that's already been poured out on Christ. Nevertheless, it's a foolish thing to think you can sin with impunity in the meantime, knowing what God's feeling is about these things. The Lord's not going to be mocked. And not by his children, for sure. So Paul's first point against this kind of thinking is that we know these things are not acceptable to God because he says they are deserving of his wrath. And therefore, we need to be concerned with them too. Secondly, Paul says we are not to be partakers with the world. And the word for partaker in Greek can also be translated partner or one who shares something with another person. That is, you're not supposed to share the same lifestyle. You're not supposed to share the same testimony as an unbeliever. It's as if you could think of believers and unbelievers as salespeople in the world selling something, each of us pitching a different product. So you could say unbelievers are off in the world declaring, tastes great. And believers are supposed to go out into that same world declaring, less filling. That is a different slogan for a different product, so to speak. But what if we adopt their slogan? That is, if by our behavior... We look and sound just like them. It would be as if they're saying, tastes great, and our response is, tastes great. Well, then at that point, looking like them and sounding like them, not only is our slogan the same, our product is the same. We're pitching the same lifestyle. We're saying the same things about what God expects. Missional thinking, though, would understand you cannot look like the world and think that you're offering them something different, merely with your words. In verse 8, Paul says, remember, you were taken out of this world. You were brought into new life, into light, out of darkness. He's saying, you know, we were all once salespeople for darkness, whether we knew it or not. Now you're supposed to be selling a new product called light, so walk as children of light. So here's his second argument against thinking you can just do whatever you want. His second argument is, If you're supposed to sell a different product, to look differently to the world, if you don't make an effort to do so, you completely lose the advantage, the opportunity to pitch the gospel. You become a salesman for the wrong thing. Which leads Paul to his third argument, verse 10. He says, we are to live for the goal of pleasing the Lord, not ourselves. So the Christian who thinks that he or she can just do whatever they want, because they've already been forgiven, doesn't really matter anymore, In effect, what that person is saying, and maybe I should stop there for a minute, because at this point you may not be identifying with that comment because you yourself have never said to yourself, I can just do whatever I want because I've been saved. No, we never do that. That's never how we actually articulate it in our brain. I would take a fairly immature, fairly presumptuous person to even think that and believe it. We may not articulate those words, but in effect... That's in the back of the mind of the person who is sinning without fear of God. Whether they're articulating it or whether it's just a feeling in the back of their head, what they're saying to themselves is, I can make this decision, I can do this thing right now, I can enjoy this sin right now, and I'm still in heaven. At night, when I put my head on the pillow, I don't have any fears, because I know I've been saved by the blood of Christ. And that's true. But that kind of sinning with impunity can only happen when you've moved the goal from pleasing Christ to pleasing yourself. Because what you want is what you want. And that's not the goal of a Christian life. Notice Paul says in verse 10, we are trying to learn what pleases Christ. And that phrase, trying to learn, it's a single Greek word. And it's actually translated here, I think, in a very unhelpful way. Because it literally translates to prove. The word prove. It's exactly the same Greek word used in Romans 12, 2, when Paul says, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here again, Paul's saying the same thing in these verses. He's saying, he's not saying we are trying to know how to please God. He's saying we are trying to prove that we please God. We're trying to demonstrate to the world what pleases God. We're supposed to be walking billboards for what is godliness, for what is holiness, for what pleases the Lord. We won't be perfect in that regard. But the question isn't whether you're being perfect at it. The question is, is it your goal? When people witness us living differently, they get proof, through our example, of what pleases Christ. They learn what God is pleased with when they see us keep his commandments, when we walk in love, when we serve him in our mission. It proves truth when we live a lifestyle according to scripture. That's the goal. So those are Paul's three arguments. Now I want you to take a second look at how he began this passage. Back in verse 5, notice how he began. He says, you know with certainty. But in Greek, what Paul does there is he strings two different Greek words together that mean to know. So in effect, Paul said, you know that you know. And I think what he's emphasizing here is this is a truth that you cannot deny, you cannot pretend you haven't heard it, and you cannot hope it isn't true. You know, he says, that unbelievers have no inheritance in the kingdom. Now that's a kind of odd thing to open up with when you think about it. It's odd to describe believers as those who have no inheritance in the kingdom. It's oddly specific because, of course, unbelievers have no inheritance in the kingdom. They won't even be in the kingdom. So why make a reference to unbelievers' lack of inheritance? It seems like an obtuse way to reference them, doesn't it? So why did Paul choose that way? I think he chose that way to offer a subtle reminder to the believer that we should be thinking about how our behavior impacts our inheritance. Because we will be there by faith alone. But the question is, what will be there waiting for us? Living like the world means potentially sacrificing something in the kingdom. And in effect, I think this is Paul's fourth argument. It's just hidden in the way he introduces the whole passage. The hidden argument is, not only are we testing God, not only are we failing to stand apart, not only are we failing to seek to prove or please God, but fourth, we're taking risks with our own reward. So I guess if the first three arguments don't persuade you, turn it inward for a moment and think about your own future as you consider what you're doing. So rather than join the world's behaviors, Paul says, no, we've got to be thinking about this in an entirely different way. We have to go a different direction. Look where he takes us to in verse 11. He says in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Paul says, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And here again, notice he mentions the bearing of fruit, or in this case the lack thereof. That would seem to elude, once again, to our inheritance, that we gain nothing by following after the world's example. But on the other hand, you can bear fruit for God if you obey Him. And part of that bearing of fruit is for your own sake in the kingdom. When you live a called out life, Paul says, when you're doing this, you're casting light onto darkness and you're exposing the deeds of darkness. Now, I want to spend a moment on this concept of exposing deeds because this is an important principle of Christian witnessing of what God is doing by the very existence of the church on the earth. But 
This process of exposing the evil of the world, it can also be misunderstood in practice. In fact, I think it often is. Now, the principle is this. When we live a life following Christ, when we adopt a lifestyle that is consistent with Scripture, we put away the old self, we pick up the new self. As we do that, the principle is we expose the sin of the world, which is the ultimate purpose of the church on earth, to bring light into darkness. You could sum it up as a principle of contrast. There's a fundamental principle called the principle of contrast. And what it says is this. Differences in form suggest differences in meaning. When two things differ in appearance, it means to us that they represent different messages. I'll give you a simple example. If you stop at a traffic light, there's a red light and there's a green light. Now, red contrasts starkly with green. And that contrast between the colors indicates to us a difference in meaning. Stop versus go, right? Uh, or, as in the case of some people I know, stop, go really fast, and go. But if you're colorblind, by the way, you still get a difference in contrast because we put one on top and one on the bottom. So that if you don't know them by color, at least you know them by the position. Here again, the difference in position means a difference in message. Right? It's a basic principle of nature. It's called the principle of contrast. That's a principle that the church is built on. That is, the church cannot fulfill its mission of bringing a message that's different from the world unless we contrast with the world. Otherwise, if we don't look any different than the world, the world assumes we don't have a different message. We are just another of the world. That's the basic problem of a lack of contrast. And that comes down to our individual choices. Our choices are supposed to contrast with the world's choices so that we convey a different message or a different meaning. That's what Paul means when he says we expose the deeds of the darkness. And what he means is our life of godliness sheds light on the world's evil. And it goes beyond merely exposing evil. In fact, the Greek word translated expose, it actually means refute. And so, by our life, we are refuting the world's perspective. For example, the world says you and I evolved from animals. The text of Scripture says that we were created in God's image. And as we live out a life that believes in the sovereignty of God and creation, we are testifying, we are proving that, and we are refuting what the world believes. The world says fleshly desires are natural and they can't be judged, no matter how depraved, no matter how selfish. And we testify that we are desperately wicked by nature and deserving of judgment, and yet, by grace, we may be rescued. The world says that we are living meaningless and temporary lives that are nothing but quiet desperation. Therefore, get all you can while you have time. We say that we have an eternal future, and therefore we have to consider carefully what comes after death. As obvious as this principle is, this principle of contrast, it's easy to misunderstand how to accomplish it. Instead of living it out, instead of putting it into practice the way the Bible expects, some Christians think it's about what we say rather than what we do. So they choose to expose the world's sin using only their mouths rather than through living a holy lifestyle. You know the kind of person I'm talking about? They call out others' sin or the world's sin, but they fail to deal with it in their own lives. And we've all seen examples of this kind of misdirected witnessing for Christ. They get the big picture, which is we're supposed to be a contrast, but they fail to appreciate the Bible's direction on how that contrast is supposed to be manifested. Like the Christian who posts condemning messages online against things like homosexuality, 
And yet at the very same time, they praise movies depicting sex and violence, or they love music that's laced with obscenities. Or they protest legalized abortion, but they turn a blind eye to unmarried Christian couples living together. Or they complain about the ungodliness that we find inside public schools, while at the same time raising kids that use profanity and pornography. When Paul says here to expose the deeds of darkness, they think he's talking about what we say, and what he's actually talking about is how we live. We are to preach the gospel every day and everywhere, but only use words when it's necessary, as the saying goes. Because our mission is to live a called-out life before our neighbors. It's not to call out our neighbors' lives of sin. Because if we don't make that distinction, what we're going to find is that the church is going to become known for what it's against, rather than to be known for who we serve and why. And that's why Paul remarks in verse 12. Look what he says. I think Paul's on the same line of thought, because in verse 12, Paul says, It's disgraceful to even speak of the things that the world does in secret. I think what he's saying is, That when it comes to dealing with the gross immoralities that mark the world, that characterize unbelievers, we should talk less and walk more. It's unwholesome, Paul says, to even discuss the evil that runs rampant around us. And the Bible tells us to separate ourselves from these things, to come out of these things, and to have nothing to do with these things. And I think what Paul's saying is we may have underestimated just how much of a coming out the Bible was expecting. We shouldn't be talking about it. We should move so far away from the sin of the world that we're not even drawn into conversations about such things. We let our lifestyle do the talking. So when your colleagues at the water cooler or your friends in the hallway between classes start entertaining discussions of evil things in the world, step away, move away. Don't even be a part of it. Because in the end, friends, apologetics is not about bringing powerful argument into those moments It's about having a convicting testimony before those moments. So that through a living of a called out life, you expose the evil of the world. And what that exposure is supposed to obtain is an opportunity for you to give a testimony. Somebody sooner or later is going to be convicted by your lifestyle. And as they see who you are in trial and in joy and in all the circumstances of life, someday one of them at least may come up to you and ask you to give a defense for the hope that lies within you, the Bible says. And at that point, you will have skipped past the need to discuss all of those disgraceful things. You'll be speaking about only one thing at that point. You'll be talking about the Lord and his love and his grace. You didn't have to wade through the muck to get to the good part. You just lived a called out life, which brought about an opportunity for a discussion of good things. That's why Paul says here that the evil things of the world become visible when they are exposed by light. And when he says light here, he's talking about lifestyle, living a life that puts away sin and obeys the Lord. This is what Jesus said as confirmation in Matthew 5.14. Look how he defines our light. Look what he says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before men in such a way that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, that phrase in verse 16 did not say, let your light shine before men in such a way that when they hear all your good words, it's not about what we say. Collectively, we are light. The church is light. And he put us in the world so that we would make truth visible. We would prove what pleases God. And it only happens if you live differently than the world. You shine a light as you do that. 
Jesus says, the light is our good works, not our good words. Isn't it interesting, though, how often we go back to the formula of words over works? And I don't just mean in our own lives. Think about the church in general. I fall into this trap myself. As leaders, we'll sit around sometimes trying to plan a way that we can reach more people for Christ. And our thoughts so often run first to better ways to communicate about Christ. We talk about flyers and billboards and websites and outreach programs that put people on the corner with a Bible track. They're not wrong to do these things, but isn't it interesting that we always think about our mission first in terms of how we talk. But the Bible says that's putting the cart before the horse. Our mission begins with how we live so that through our good deeds we bring light to darkness and that will follow with opportunity for words. If you mix that up, ironically, if you were to talk to the world about Christ, about our church, about coming to know the Lord, about serving here, whatever, and at the same time we're doing all that talking, if we're mimicking the world's behaviors and habits and speech and values and so on, we're not shedding any spiritual light despite all of those words because we've just blended into the world. We're sharing in their darkness. Why would they think that what we're saying has any meaning? Remember the principle of contrast? If every light on that stoplight were exactly the same color and in the same position, what would it mean? You would have no understanding of what's going on except that the light blinks. The same thing is true for us when we talk about Christ and then we do all the same things the world does. Now I want you to turn that around though. What if we lived a life that is so called out that it looks nothing like the world? You show kindness to those who hate you. You give charity when everyone else is worried about keeping their money. You restrain your speech when everybody's mouth sounds like a sailor. You're pure and self-restrained in the way you use your body. You steer clear of all the bad behaviors that mark the world. You even go so far as to excuse yourself from conversations when they go to sordid or vulgar topics. Paul says, when you do that, you're actually serving the mission of the church, bringing light into darkness because you are exposing the evil of the world. That is, you are showing the contrast. And you notice you do that without ever having said anything. Paul's not said anything to us about our speech going in a certain direction. He just told us, don't live like the world. Isn't that ironic? The person who has the whole speech of what they need to say about Christ, but they live like the world, that person gets nowhere. We say nothing and just live like a Christian is supposed to live, and we're bringing light into darkness. That lifestyle is the point. That's what missional living looks like. Because it leads to opportunity for testimony. And sooner or later, someone's going to ask you an important question. They're going to be in a crisis, and they're going to come to you for spiritual support because they remember you were the person who lived in peace in the midst of trial when everybody else was losing their head. Or they're convicted by your sin. That's happened. I've seen this happen in my own life where, without any effort on my part to necessarily show off, of course, or to say anything at all, just being myself... It leads someone else to ask you questions about how did you rise above your sin in that area of your life? How can I do the same thing? And in those moments, then you get to share your testimony. And when you share your testimony from that platform, that is a platform of called out life, the words you'll share at that point have a lot more power than they would have if you had started with the words while your life didn't look any different. Because your testimony began even before you opened your mouth. Now you're just putting some sense to what they've already observed. Paul sums up this argument in verse 14, and he does so by quoting what I think must have been an early Christian hymn or a poem or something that was being sung or said in his day. He says to the believer, Awake and rise from the dead so Christ may shine on you. If it was a hymn in the day, it was paraphrasing Scripture because it's a paraphrasing of Isaiah 60, verse 1. 
But it's so elegant. It's a very concise summary of everything Paul's just been teaching. Look what he's saying. He's saying, having been saved, having been made alive in Christ spiritually, now we awaken from the dead. That is, we awaken from this dead life, the practices of the deadness of our life. We come out from that and we live a life of faith. This is another way of saying you take off the old nature, you put on the new nature. Because your spirit's already changed. That's the, the idea of awakening spiritually. You've already woken up. Now the time has come to get out of bed, to arise and live it out. But I think a lot of Christians just stay in bed. Like when your alarm clock goes off early and you've got to get up and you kind of reach over and slap it off. Right Now you're awake, but you don't want to be. That feeling where it's just easier to say, boy, this bed feels comfortable. I'm just going to roll right over. And sometimes you do, but most of the time you don't. Why? Why don't you? I mean, you certainly feel like staying in bed. It feels good. But you also know that you have to get to work or school or something. You have to. And getting out of bed is going to require a certain amount of effort, a certain amount of commitment, a certain amount of sacrifice. For the most part, if you're tired, you don't want to do it. It doesn't feel good. But why do you do it? Because it's the right thing to do. Because you know there are blessings that come from the paycheck that requires you to be at work. Or there are blessings that will accrue from earning the the grade in that class that lets you get the degree and so on. We understand there is a short-term loss for a long-term gain, so when the alarm goes off, we get out of bed. In fact, if you stay in bed, that good feeling passes pretty quickly. The long-term consequences, they don't necessarily pass. That's what the hymn means when it says, Christ will shine on you. It's a reference to the blessing that comes to those who make an effort to leave their dead life behind. So if you rise to follow Christ, you will know his pleasure as reflected in various ways to include your reward. That's your motivation to turn off the snooze, crawl out of your comfortable bed, forego temporary pleasures of sin in whatever form, and work on your sanctification. There is something in it for us. And Paul concludes verse 15. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The great summary. Simply put, let's be careful out there. Let's be careful with our life as Christians. Let's guard our walk. Don't be unwise. And what he's saying is don't make foolish trade-offs. Like that example of the person in bed. Don't elect to spend an extra hour or two laying in the bed at the risk of losing your job or failing in your class, obviously that's an unwise choice. Obviously that's foolish. Well, similarly, if you choose to live in immorality, if you prefer impurity or greed or vulgarity or any of these other things over pleasing the Lord, you're trading something eternal and weighty, potentially, for something temporary and meaningless in the end. I mean, if you see it in those terms, don't you all agree instinctively? Yeah, that's not very wise. Well, hold that thought And carry it with you into the next moment when the temptation to do those things arises. And ask yourself then the same question that I'm asking now. Is this trade-off worth it? The thing I'm about to go do, is it worth what I'll lose? I don't even know what that is. I haven't even seen it yet. It's so weighty. It so outweighs anything here. I can just trust that I'll regret this decision. Paul says that's why you're supposed to make the most of your time. And the word time there is a reference to the number of days that each of us has been given to live on this earth. And I know we don't much like to talk about mortality, about the inevitability of our physical death, but you know what? We all know it. It's coming. Sooner or later, it's coming. No one escapes it, not, not unless Christ returns first, in which case we just pass through it fast. 
So we're all going to die. We all have a limited amount of time to serve. To prove ourselves, that is, faithful. I think about my own situation. And I can feel it slipping away. Not in some kind of panicked sense, but I'm appreciative of how little time we each really do get in serving the Lord. My walk as a Christian began in my late 20s. So let's just round up. Let's say I was age 30, give or take. So let's assume I'll be blessed to live until I'm 80. All right, well, that gives me 50 years of opportunity. Now, if that sounds like a lot of time to you, then you are under the age of 25. Because anyone past middle age recognizes that don't sound like a lot of time. 50 years. It's only 18,250 days. Think about that number, 18,250 days. And when you consider that I'm at the age 51 right now, that means I only have a little over 10,000 days left. And that's assuming I live to 80. Maybe it'll be less. In fact, for that matter, no one really knows how long you're going to live. So no matter how old or young you are right now, who's to say how many days you got left? Best case, averaging out the, the chances here, I got 10,000 days left. That's not much time, friends. How many of those days am I going to squander? What's the maximum potential I can do for the Lord in just 10,000 days? After today, it'll be 9,999. Again, this isn't intended to create in us this sense of panic or an overemphasis on the fleeting nature of life. It's just supposed to put our minds on the mission, right? And by the way, don't worry about any of the days that are past. If you're sitting here at this point feeling any conviction at all about how you've used prior days, well, join the club and then forget about it because you can't do anything about it anyway. What's the point? I think that's the reason Paul says elsewhere in his letters, not looking back, but only ahead. He says, I press on for the prize. Because if you focused on the back, you're not moving the forward. You have to stay focused this way. So let's think only about what's left, whatever numbers that is. But at least ask yourself this. How am I going to use each of those days... To bring light to the world, which means behaviors, not words, not necessarily words. Make the most of those days, not waste even one. Now Paul says we should do this because the days are evil. And here's what he means. He means if you and I don't make a plan and a commitment to use the days we have well, here's what's going to happen. The evil of the world, and that of your own flesh for that matter, it's going to get the better of you. If you haven't made a plan... To deal with the things of your life, they don't go away on their own. It's like the example of the guy in bed. You know, he may go to bed at night with the best of intentions to get up early and make it to work on time and, you know, do all those right things. But if all he has is good intentions, well, as I like to say, hope is not a plan. And so when the moment of the decision comes, the alarm goes off, the days are evil. His flesh is going to say, oh, you know what, I know I said I wanted to get up early, but no, this feels too good. Slap the, uh, the snooze. And there goes all the planning. Because there wasn't any planning, really. I'll give you an example. One of my brothers, my younger brother, uh, youngest brother, he was notorious when I was younger, when growing up, uh, for sleeping soundly, really soundly. Uh, his alarm clock would, would go off. It would wake up everyone else in the house. And, we, and we'd be in there and he's, fall, he's asleep in his own room with his alarm clock going off. And it was always the case that he was late for school and then later when he was an adult even, he would be late for work. One of the funny stories my wife and I tell is from the night my daughter was born, our first child was born, he happened to be staying with us that night. My daughter was born several weeks premature, so we weren't expecting a birth that night. And middle of the night she goes into labor and despite all the commotion, he never woke up. I even went into the room and tried to wake him just to say, by the way, we're headed to the hospital, you know. And I'm shaking him in the bed. It doesn't work. He doesn't wake up. And by that point, I'm like, I don't care. I've got to get to the hospital. I leave him sleeping. He wakes up in the morning. He's like, where did I go? Eventually, though, he had to start getting to work on time, right? I mean, eventually, if you're going to be a functioning adult, you can't have this problem. 
And eventually what he, he landed on was he took the loudest alarm he could find and he puts it on the other side of the bedroom, not near his bed. So when the alarm goes off, it takes a while to wake him, but he has to get up to turn it off. Has anybody else ever had to do this? You know, if you're too close to it. Because he, he literally would wake up, not really wake up, but sort of instinctively turn it off while he was sleeping. So he had to make that change. Right? That's a plan. That's someone saying, the days are evil. I know what my body, my flesh is capable of. I'm not going to let it win. I'm going to make a plan. And the plan is designed so that in the moment when that decision is getting made, I have something on my side. I have some advantage in the fight. I haven't just left it to chance or to hope that I'll do better next time. So take some inventory of your life. There's, I'm sure in everyone's case, there are some sins that are more prominent than others, some issues in your life that stand to do more detriment to you in walking with Christ than others. Some people have certain proclivities. Other people have other issues, right? That's normal. But knowing that, knowing yourself, you need to ask yourself, what am I doing to make the most of my time knowing the days that is my nature is evil? And the question then becomes, well, are you... Making a plan. Are you setting barriers? Are you asking for help? Are you doing the things that you know would change the situation? Or are you just pretending you wish it would change while keeping it a secret and letting it continue to own you in your life? Because after all, if you did make a more concerted effort at it, you might actually make it go away and you're sort of enjoying it. And we all do this. We all do this. Paul says in his charge to us today, make plans to guard yourself to make the most of the time you have remaining, to live out a testimony in your behavior for the purpose of bringing light to glorify a Father in heaven who saved you. And to do it knowing it leads to potential for greater blessing, perhaps in the kingdom and certainly now even as you see him blessing his children who please him. That's why Paul took a moment in this list of problems, of sins, of whatever kind, to encourage us a little into the process that's required if we're actually going to tackle any of these things in our life. Let's think about that this week. And next week we'll come back into the list. We'll move into a few new items and then quickly into husbands, wives, children, and onward. And there's a lot there for us we want to take a look at. We'll finish with a time of communion and prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time in the Word again. Thank you for a reminder that we must plan to serve you better. Thank you for the equipping that makes it possible. Forgive us, Father, for our sins, wherever they are in our life, whatever it is that we do that displeases you. Bring them to our mind and give us the same distaste for them that you possess so that we would have the incentive to set them aside. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that when we live out in the proper way, the witness you've given us, as we expose the world's deeds for what they are, that you would give opportunity from those moments to speak about you in loving ways so that those who are Convicted can eventually be those who confess. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.